Welcome to Tales of My Dead Heroes. I'm Josh Allen Friedman, and this is part two of Keith Ferguson Remembers. In this episode, we'll go through some of his music chronology. If you haven't heard part one, I suggest you listen to what his amazing life was like. Ferguson was the original bass player of the fabulous Thunderbirds, who spearheaded a Texas blues revival in the 1970s and 80s. He was omitted from that band by the time they went top 40 with Tough Enough. But then he joined the Tailgaters, the favorite band of Texas music Illuminati like ZZ Top. Ferguson was considered to be the ultimate blues bass player. He laid down a swinging elephant's trunk of bottom under the song. By 1993, when these conversations took place, he was banished by the Antones blues community. Keith's front porch on his wooded estate became the ultimate Austin porch hangout for old pachucos, hard luck animals, and aging hippies. Hippies who were still embittered over the Vietnam War. Here's Keith. I mean, anybody that was in a parade coming back from Vietnam, I'd feel like I was walking up and down the street in a bozo suit. I mean, what did you do? Why are you in this parade? I went over there and flamethrowered a village. My late friend, Fat Tony Kish, a sax player who gigged with Keith in the early 70s and later became a National Lampoon comedy writer and junkie, had once planned to move to Mexico with Keith. They found some idyllic pine forest mountain village in the Mexican state of Michoacan, where they could have heroin provided hassle-free without the law in their ass. They planned to hire a manservant to fetch their daily fix, then live like gentlemen junkies away from the archaic drug laws of America. Neither Keith or Tony had a driver's license, and both had sworn they'd never drive a car. According to Tony, they headed out one day for Mexico to fulfill this dream, but wound up in Providence, Rhode Island. They got the directions wrong. I got a hose in my shoe and blitters on my feet. I got to get to that woman because she's so sweet. Welcome to my baby. Welcome to my baby. Ferguson paces his pastoral porch, hunched backward, scratching, chain smoking, downing one cup of Kool Aid after another. A rooster claw adorns the front door, like Wolfsbane. Got to keep the neighbors pacified, he says. Next door lives a bookie for cockfights. Inside Keith's casa, reminiscent of a 1960s hippie commune, the walls were covered by roadside artifacts. South of the border, Sammy and the fabulous erections are sneaking across the border for one night only. Club posters from the Tex-Mex frontier circuit. Los Alegres de Taran, Los Tornados del Norte. Keith knew them all. A few years back, the house became knee-deep in such hipster compost, burying him alive in coolness. An archivist friend named Liz Henry led a mercy mission of volunteers who bulldozed through. All Keith's worldly possessions were organized into three archival categories, Negro, Mexican, and other. Keith's artifacts are now archived at Texas Tech University as are his mother's, Margaret Ferguson's, artifacts. 
Back in 1964, when Keith became ripe for the Vietnam draft, he managed to bust up his legs in a fight in Laredo, and he got a deferment. The fact that I was 17 years old and knew that anybody that followed French colonialism knew that uh, in the Vietnam War is not going to work unless you kill all of them. I don't want to be a part of blowing up one of the most beautiful places on earth. Tigers and elephants and you know, now it's landmines and Agent Orange and CIA operatives and you know just garbage. And uh, I couldn't stomach that when I was 17. You know, and it blew my mind that the establishment was expecting me to go do that, be a part of that, and uh, calling me a traitor if I didn't. Well, I knew I knew that General Jap was still in command of their forces, you know, and he hadn't been whipped yet, you know. He kicked our ass, you know, I mean, just like he did the French. You know? I'm not going to go over there and let him make bad pork out of me like he did the French. Keith kept hearing someone screaming, fuck you, fuck you, deep inside his walls. He thought he was having a nervous breakdown. He released several gecko lizards under the house for insect control. He'd be shaving, and suddenly from within the wall, something would shriek, Fuck you! Fuck you! He'd whip around and cut himself. It was the geckos! They emit this uncanny shriek that comes out as, Fuck you! in English. They're indigenous to Laos and Cambodia. It freaked out our boys in Nam who thought they were Kong, cursing from the trees. Fuck you! Fuck you! It would have been hard to imagine Keith Ferguson marching to Gunnery Sergeant Hartman's orders in full metal jacket, or even to Sergeant Carter in Gomer Pyle. If he got drafted, he was heading due south toward his beloved Mexico, not Canada. But Keith got in a fight in Laredo and busted up his knees. My dad asked me if I was moving north or south. I told him south. They didn't think I was military material. Keith got a deferment and never went to Nam. Another lost recruit was Johnny Winter, a blues rock phenom who would soon break out with the largest record signing deal to date in 1969. $600,000 from Columbia Records. Keith had a car back then and moved Winter and his girlfriend from the Belt Freeway into the Montrose, Houston's Haight-Ashbury. Keith gigged with Johnny through 66 and 67. Uh, they came from Beaumont while yeah. I was in high school. And, well, Johnny came first. And, uh, Edgar stayed closer to home than Johnny did. And Johnny was playing these bars, and I just started to play, and people would kid me about having this real large collection of blues records. And that's all I listened to. Like in the sixth grade or something, you know, you'd bring different people would bring records to the parties every week and they never wanted me to bring them you know, because you know, what they don't like Otis Rush or Johnny Hooker anyway Johnny that's all he liked and his musicians thought that it would be funny if we got together you know, there was a little clique you know of guys you know that played it was before everybody had a band and uh, they thought well this would be this makes sense you know, let's put these two freaks, these two mutants together, you know. and uh, he flipped out completely. You've never seen it in 78 since life. 
few musicians start so late. In high school, Keith had been tight with the best mariachis in town, heavy-duty lounge acts. A member of the Compianes, Texas's leading Hispanic music family, taught him to play. It was 1966, he was 20. Ferguson turned professional days after first picking up a left-handed bass. He joined a Chicano show band where he danced the sideways pony with a tambourine on his hip. You said you told me you started playing in 1966. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was playing. Which is a late start. Pretty quick. Oh, yeah. But you yeah. started, you must have been great very fast. Yeah, very fast. I had to learn fast. Mm-hmm. I started doing little gigs with John. These weird uh, lesbian bars. And what were they like back then in Houston? How many could there have been in Houston? Many. They were real under the table. They had to pay the stake, the city and the county cops you know, every week just to stay up and they come in every twice a week and shake them down hippie keith and albino freak johnny winter played the lesbian circuit they played negro rhythm and blues in smoky clubs with slow grinding girls they did this in redneck houston at a time when any public display of lesbian activity was dangerous underground and police had to be paid off to avoid arrests or closure Keith played Club L'Amour, and then he played the Upstairs Lounge six nights a week, seven hours a night until 4 a.m. He also played North Houston's roughest clubs, like the Suburban Lounge, the Polka Dot, and Guys and Dolls. These were the hangouts of 1960s Texas gangsters, the Overtons and the Laura Copy Gang. What we call characters, they dress like Mexicans and listen to black music and hate both of them. They dressed like Mexicans, listened to black music, and hate both of them. Johnny Winter, a skinny, half-blind, long-haired albino freak, became a great blues rock innovator in the era of the super guitarist. He was just about my main influence. As with Stevie Ray Vaughan, Keith Ferguson played with Johnny before he made it big. I kept having to, to uh, be careful not to stop and stare in the middle of the song. Like Keith, Johnny Winter wasn't Vietnam military material either. But Winter, the object of redneck scorn, became a hell of a good street fighter. We used to call him the stork. <laughs> but nobody messed with him. He was really, you know, one night he knocked out an off-duty cop. And, uh, called him a girl or something. And, uh, I saw him. I was sitting with him and he uh, upended a table on these two. 
guys, good old boys, skin the hell out of them. You want to fuck with Johnny Winter back in the 60s? A skinny white albino, you want to pick on him? I don't think so. He'd kick the shit out of you. Did you ever see Winter actually, you saw, did you see him fight? Oh yeah. yeah. Real you strong. Really? Real strong. Evidently he could redirect all the, uh, whoever was bothering him became everybody that ever bothered him in his life. So he just let him have it. He was like a snake. It was great to watch if he didn't blink. Uh, some jag off you know, like just wanted a harmless freak to be done. Yeah. And they found out quick. Mm-hmm. They had to usually had to be told later what happened to him. So he was righteous every time he got in a fight. It wasn't every time that I saw it, yeah. He wasn't a, a bully. Oh no, no, he just you know, defended himself any time. Blind he people seldom are. The first album Keith played bass on was in nineteen seventy five. Reunion of the Cosmic Brothers, Freddie Fender and Doug Somm, live at the Armadillo. It was on Crazy Cajun Records. That's with two Ks. It was Huey Moe's label of the week. Louisiana producer Huey Moe was nicknamed the Crazy Cajun himself and was arrested for a huge stash of child porn he also produced. He jumped bail and fled to Juarez, Mexico. He was caught and sentenced to 15 years. Keith first came to Austin in 1972 to join Jimmy Vaughn's band, The Storm. I was in Houston, and uh, anyway, I'd been wanting to get in The Storm for a long time. Jimmy's old band, The Storm, and it was Jimmy, me, Lewis Cowdery from Mars, the harp player. Well, I quit first and joined Stevie and all Bram Hall Sr., and we couldn't get arrested. Nobody wanted to hear us. Nobody. Except uh, Stevie's creditors. (laughs) After Kim Wilson arrived from Minnesota, Jimmy Vaughn got Keith Ferguson into what became the Thunderbirds in 1975. And on drums was the very soul of Austin himself, Mike Buck. We couldn't get arrested either, but we were doing a hell of a lot better than little Stevie and all of it. Locally, you know, whatever. Where we play, what clubs do we play? Not many. Uh, it was more of a country music town. Yeah, yeah. And we were so hardcore that nobody knew what to do with us. Were there any blues bands at that time in this town? Yeah. Or any, uh, one of the only ones? Not that I can remember, nothing like us. So Willie Nelson was down here at that time and Jerry Jeff Walker, mm-hmm. and they, were, they had an image as being outlaws. Yeah. Waylon Jennings. And they were playing regulars before they all... We were the outlaws. People wondered how we lived. Well, they never work. But Antones came along, and that sort of saved us. At least we could get some food. Muddy Waters hurt us. We kind of fried him. We sounded like his old best band that he had in the 50s, with Jimmy Rogers in it. Anyway, we went back up there raving about us. And so we got in our little band and made this Austin to Boston tour, you know. We went up there and wasted everybody. Couldn't believe it. The Fabulous Thunderbirds of Austin, Texas were the first white band to remove all the psychedelic blues rock innovations of the 60s and pare it down to a 1950s Chicago style. This threw me for a loop back in New York. 
Jimmy is innate, I would say, and Kim evidently too. Kim can just uh, decipher any any lyrics apparently effortlessly. What do you mean decipher? I mean, you know, the, the old recordings, a lot of times they're really hard to understand. Yeah. Some of them are in dialect, you know, and he gets it every time. It's like Harold Wolf or something. Yeah, not to him. Do you remember any lyric back then that was something he would have picked out that you wouldn't have understood on a record that he was? Yeah, yeah, Mark Deck. Because I don't play cards. You know, it didn't make much sense to me. His life is like a card game, and then it went into a martial. song and they'll say, you know, it's like, my baby's got me on the wonder. They'll say, my baby's got me on the one note, you know, because that's what it sounds like to them. It's like hearing somebody in Laredo, Mexico doing Chuck Berry. And they do it all phonetically. But we didn't do that. And pretty soon everybody back there wanted to be us. Everyone in Austin? No, in Boston. We still couldn't get arrested here, you know, but it got better. We're the Thunderbirds. No, they didn't go there. No, they're probably in the job corps somewhere, you know, or something. And uh, we went from floors to motels. The T-Birds had a mini cult following in New York by 1979, which included me. Their deceptive simplicity was a revelation. You didn't have to try and play like Jeff Beck to be a blues guitarist. They even affected fashion. Those 1950s open-collar shirts like Muddy Waters once wore, baggy suit pants, alligator shoes. But Keith was the only one who could get away with wearing women's perfume and Mexican camisas. I used to look just like that in high school. Pachucos and... So like they, Mexican... Or they had gone double-knit, you know. After we came out, you couldn't find a clear shirt in a shop anywhere. The price, like, tripled. You know, you, you, so I quit wearing them. You affected fashion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody up there wanted to look like Jimmy. You know, and guys started getting tattoos all over themselves in New York. And it was interesting. The rest of the band wanted to leave the budding blues revival in Austin, Texas, and move to Boston, where they were first successful. But not Keith. Everyone else wanted to move up there. New York? To Boston. Yeah, why, why was that? I mean, they still put it like that's supposed to be I, I, The only thing I could figure out was that they followed the record company line, like, you guys are fine, but all you have to do is change. You know, like, they all think that blues is a, a stone to step on getting somewhere else. And I thought we should have been getting government subsidy you know, as an art form. I imagined 
that the original Thunderbirds intimidated the Rolling Stones as a white blues band. But they got booed off stage opening for the Stones at the Dallas Cotton Bowl in 81. Nonetheless, girls went wild for the T-Birds. When the Thunderbirds got stressed, you could see the herpes flare up on their faces like females menstruating in unison. But for Keith, the heroine and the touring began to wear hard. Customs officers make him miss planes, he gets pulled over and humiliated by cops on the road. He was even jailed for moving a roadblock on 6th Street in Austin to avoid a construction detour in front of the load-in for a club. They don't care that he's a legendary bass player. So by 1990, his music career was almost over, and he became a retired sage on his front porch. Most mornings, Keith would sit there in his poncho, listening to his hair grow, sipping beers while watching the squares go off to work. Every day, Keith watches the Mexican soap opera, Calienes de Magura, Chains of Bitterness, starring Daniela Castro, his favorite Mexican actress. It's set in San Miguel de Allende, his favorite town. There's a break with an ITT tech commercial. A long-haired dude stands in a recording studio and preaches his testimonial. I'm not a musician, but I work in rock and roll. No shit, mutters Keith to the TV. I'm a musician and I don't. Keith Ferguson passed away in 1997 at age 50. He was like an old wolf. When he played, it wasn't like other bass players. Laid back, riding some low wave and fixed with dope on some even deeper wave. His bass lines were exquisite, the tone, the taste, the simplicity. I wish there could be a Thunderbirds or a Tailgaters reissue isolated down to just Keith's bass tracks. I imagine that album becoming the number one hit in America, toppling Taylor Swift and Kanye West off the charts forever. This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm for a recommended playlist that goes along with this episode. I'll see you next week. <laughs>